This is Healthcare Policy Unpacked, a podcast exclusively for Health Plan Alliance members, produced in partnership with Spring Street Exchange and policy insider Chris Condolucci. Welcome to our Health Plan Alliance members. I'm Dennis Bolin. I work for you at the Health Plan Alliance. It's good to be with you. And Chris, it's good to be with you as well. I always look forward to our conversations and uh, I learn so much from you. Since we last talk, we've blown right past Labor Day. Vacations are over. Schools are back in session. How does it feel to have the summer over and, uh, and turning our attention to the fall? And before we know it, the holidays are going to be here. Yes. And I say uh, the summer was fun with a frown, mind you, because summer is now officially over since we are past Labor Day. But it was uh, a good time with family and friends, uh, travel, work, all of the above. But now it's back to the grind, right? Post Labor Day. But, you know, as we discussed, Dennis, prior to uh, this podcast and the last one, August was pretty busy, wasn't it? It sure was. You know, you had mentioned last time you had given us a warning, a a forecast that it was going to be a busier than usual August. And I think, Chris, it was even busier than you had anticipated. So why don't we jump right into things? You covered much of what happened in August in your recent September to brief But maybe just a quick recap to help structure our conversation today. I pulled three things that I'd like to talk with you about today. The first is the release of the final surprise medical billing regulations. The federal departments issued some really helpful, frequently asked questions or FAQs on that as well. And then uh, there were a couple of FAQs around the transparency of coverage rule too. All of those things are very important to our members, Chris. So, you know, if we can cover them today, we can start with the final surprise billing regs and then number two, look at the surprise billing FAQs and then wrap it up with the uh, transparency FAQs. How's that sound? Yeah, no, I like the structure and those are important issues for our HPA members and they're relevant because to your point, Dennis, as we discussed in the August podcast, August was an abnormally busy month with Congress staying in town to pass the Inflation Reduction Act. Then our podcast aired and about a week later, the federal departments decided to dump a bunch, a whole big bunch of information on us relating to surprise billing, as well as the transparency and coverage rule that you mentioned. So, yes, I say again with a frown, August was super, super busy, even busier than what we articulated in uh, our August podcast. So, to your question, Mr. Dennis, starting with the final surprise billing regs, those were issued on August 19th. And we had been waiting, anxiously awaiting the release of those regs. And a lot of us actually thought that there would be a lot more information in the final regs that we saw on August 19th. What we really saw in this August 19th final reg release was three main components or three prongs, as I've used before. The three prongs that were in the final regs was, one, the elimination of the rebuttal presumption standard. Two, 
requiring additional information when a payer downcodes or changes the service code or modifier that the provider initially included in their bill that the provider sent over to the payer. And the third prong component bucket, however you want to refer to it, is reminding the federal arbiters that they must provide a detailed explanation of their final determination. So those were really the three main components, Dennis, and I'll I'll say this and turn it back to you, which we can dig into each of those prongs, is starting with the rebuttal presumption, is, you know, we were hoping that there would be more information in the final reg. For example, uh, more information relating to the IDR process, more information on how to develop your qualifying payment amount, which is the median in-network rate, as we've discussed. Uh, A lot of folks have had questions about the use of a third-party database when calculating their qualifying payment amount. There's a lot of questions on whether and what requirements entities have to meet to qualify as a third-party entity. None of that information was in the final regs. Instead, those three components, those three prongs were the only pieces of information that we saw. Well, Chris, we always need more detail, right? And it seems like we can never get enough. And they kind of dribble it out, if you will, over time. But as you mentioned, it is really interesting, some of the things that they related uh, specifically around the arbitration process. And, you know, we're just going to have to watch how that develops, right? No doubt. No doubt. And and it really, that's a good segue into, you know, starting with this elimination of the rebuttable presumption standard, because that was a core piece of the federal arbitration process. And, you know, as I mentioned, the federal departments eliminated, officially eliminated the rebuttable presumption standard in the final reg. So let's set that as a baseline. And let me back up a second, just to give everyone a refresher and a little bit of history. So back on September 30th, when the federal departments issued their interim final rule, September 30th of 2021, issued an interim final rule relating to the federal uh, arbitration process and how it should work. And in that IFR, the federal departments developed this rebuttable presumption standard. Well, what is the rebuttable presumption standard? Just again, a refresher. The rebuttable presumption standard said, hey, federal IDR or federal arbiter, you must look to the qualifying payment amount, which is the median in network rate, And you, federal arbiter, must assume that that value represents the final payment amount unless the provider, in this case, can submit credible additional information that would convince the federal arbiter that the QPA is wrong, should not represent the final payment amount. And in that case, the arbiter would choose the provider's offer. So, Previously, with the rebuttable presumption standard, the QPA was the anchor for determining what a final payment amount should be. Well, the providers didn't like that. They argued that that standard was heavily skewed in favor of the payers, and the providers filed suit. And they were successful in a court of law. District Court out of Texas invalidated the rebuttable presumption standard. Then the federal departments reacted, saying, okay, well, we've got to listen to what the court said. And so the way the arbitration process has been working from April 15th until August 19th was the rebuttable presumption standard is gone. But we were all on the edge of our seats waiting for the federal departments to confirm 
whether the rebuttable presumption standard was indeed gone or whether the departments were going to revitalize or resurrect the standard in a final reg. That brings us to August 19th, Dennis, where the federal departments confirmed that the rebuttable presumption standard is now gone. And therefore, going forward, a federal arbiter can still look to the qualifying payment amount, this median network rate, determine whether that is indeed representative of the correct value for a final payment determination. But the arbiter also has the ability to consider or weigh this credible additional information that the providers submit. Now, the last thing I'll say on this, Dennis, is this. So what's the impact here? What's going to happen going forward? I would argue that because a provider's offer is always going to be higher than the qualifying payment amount, which again is the median in-network rate, and if the arbiter is no longer required to assume that this median in-network rate, the QPA, represents the final payment determination, there's going to be more times than not that an arbiter is going to rule in favor of the provider. Well, that's going to be an inflated fee. I would argue unreasonable compensation. And the surprise billing regs were really, or the surprise billing rules, that is, were enacted by Congress to, you know, reduce this overcharging, this unreasonable payment of compensation to something that's more reasonable. So if we're now in a world where the arbiter can weigh both the QPA and the additional information from the provider, we may very well see providers winning more and more disputes. And that's going to just have an impact on healthcare costs, increasing healthcare costs, which will ultimately be uh, be born into the premium payments that uh, patients will pay uh, going forward. So that is unfortunate, in my opinion, from an impact perspective. Uh, but to your point, Dennis, it just remains to be seen how things will play out over the next year to three years. Well, you know, watching this, Chris, it is going to be really interesting. And a couple of takeaways for me from that. One is the critical role that these arbiters will play. And then secondly, as you mentioned just there at the end, the potential unintended consequences. And we've been hearing a lot from our members. Prices may actually rise under this scheme. And so... It sounds like that's very much of a real possibility. So thanks, Chris. And as always, we'll keep watching for it. Let's turn our attention to topic number two, which was the FAQs that came out around the surprise billing. What should we have been paying attention to there, Chris? Yeah, so the frequently asked questions accompanied the final surprise billing regs and also uh, accompanied some data that the federal departments released relating to the federal arbitration process. And actually, let me talk about that data real quick, Dennis, if you'll indulge me, and then I'll get to the FAQs because it's related to what we just talked about with respect to the rebuttable presumption standard, as well as the, the impact. The data that the federal departments provided to us was just a snapshot of how things have been going over the past four months as it relates to disputes that have been run through the federal arbitration process. The federal department has told us that there were 46,000 disputes that have been run through the process since April 15th, which is exponentially higher than the 17,000 
that the departments had estimated would be run through the process over the course of a year. So that just tells us that there's a lot of disputes that are being run through the process. Another piece of information is a lot of these disputes are on hold because the non-initiating party is challenging whether the dispute is even eligible to be reviewed under the federal arbitration process. And the federal arbiters are so backed up, Dennis, that they're having trouble reviewing the question as to whether the dispute is even eligible for this federal arbitration process. In addition to the arbiters being backed up, right now there's only about 12 arbiters. We've recently heard that two of those arbiters have dropped out, have said we are no longer going to accept disputes. And that's arguably, as we're hearing through the grapevine, driven by the workload, as well as the limited compensation that these federal arbiters are being paid through this process, which in and of itself is going to continue to be a problem, not only for the federal departments who are trying to administer the process, but it's going to be a problem for the providers as well as, more importantly, the payers, because we, the payers here, are going to be, and there are some you know, provider-related issues uh, that are important to our HPA members. So really, both parties are going to have to deal with potentially a shrinking pool of federal arbiters in addition to the glut of disputes, in addition to the time it is taking for a federal arbiter to get through a dispute in the first place. So again, lots of issues, Dennis, unfortunately. So wanted to put that out there for our members to continue to take into account as this process continues to be implemented, especially in light of the final regs. Now, Dennis, with regard to the FAQs, going back to surprise billing, let's stick with that. There were some important and helpful clarifications that were included in the FAQs. First being a clarification with respect to the accuracy of the qualifying payment amount. And one of the reasons why, Dennis, I talked to you about the glut of disputes and the fact that non-initiating parties, in most cases payers, are disputing whether this dispute is even eligible for surprise billing is because the providers have been saying to the arbiter, look, the payer is not accurately calculating the qualifying payment amount. But the federal departments reminded everybody it's not the job of the providers to determine whether that QPA is calculated correctly. And you know what? It's not even the job of the arbiter to determine if the qualifying payment amount is calculated accurately. Instead, it's the federal department's job to determine whether that was calculated accurately. So the FAQ put everybody on notice that if you don't like the QPA and the calculation and you have a problem with it, you don't think it's calculated accurately, you complain to us, the departments. You don't go to the arbiter and saying that you must decide, arbiter, whether the QPA was calculated accurately or not, which is a helpful clarification of itself because we now know it's not the arbiter's job here. It's the federal department's job. And hopefully, Dennis, that helps with some of the glut that I talked about. So some of the other FAQs that were issued deal with reference-based pricing plans with no networks. The federal departments confirmed that if you're an RBP plan with no network, you are always going to be subject to the surprise billing rules 
in an emergency care out-of-network situation. However, another aspect of the surprise billing rules applies to when an out-of-network provider furnishes services at an in-network facility. Well, if you're an RBP plan with no network, you're never going to have an in-network facility. So as a result, the surprise billing rules never apply in the context of an out-of-network provider furnishing services at an in-network facility. Because again, RBP, no network, you don't have an in-network facility at all. So that was a helpful clarification, at least. Not to say that we didn't already know it, but RBP plans always going to be subject to surprise billing in emergency care. Anything else, RBP plans with no networks don't have to worry about. Another piece on RBP, there has been questions about how does an RBP plan with no network develop their QPA, calculate their QPA. I told you there's been this controversy over whether the QPA is being calculated accurately. Well, the department said in the context of RBP with no network, you must look to, you being RBP plan, you must look to a third-party database to determine your qualifying payment amount, your calculate your QPA. You can't, RBP plan, this is what the federal department said, you can't just simply make up a number. You have to look to a third-party database, which itself is going to be problematic, in my opinion, for RBP plans. Because in most cases, utilizing a third-party database, the QPA that's developed or calculated there is most likely going to be higher than the reference-based payment amount in the RBP plan's document. And so therefore, at the end of the day, an RBP plan is going to be paying higher than their reference-based amount that they've been historically paying. So a helpful clarification in knowing where an RBP plan with no network must look to for calculating a QPA, but also there's some implications there for those type of plans. Lastly, Dennis, I'll mention this on the surprise billing FAQs. The departments did confirm that if a provider is trying to get informed consent from a patient, which if the provider gets that informed consent in accordance with the rules, the surprise billing rules will not apply. The surprise billing protections will not apply. Well, the federal departments developed a model form, a standard form, a government-created form, which we see all the time, right, Dennis? We always see the government developing model notices for us. Well, there were some providers who were customizing their own notice and consent form and getting, to the, in their opinion, the informed consent that's required under the surprise billing rules. Well, the departments came back and said, look, providers, if you're not including the required information that we included in our government-created form, then you're not properly getting informed consent. You can't make up your own form and use it. So that was a helpful clarification for payers to know when the provider was claiming, hey, I got informed consent, surprise billing protections don't apply. Well, if the provider didn't get it correctly because the provider gave the patient an incorrect form, well then the surprise billing protections apply. And the process that we just talked about with all of its warts at least continue to apply. So that was an important clarification. Um, the last thing I'll say, Dennis, because this is a good segue into the transparency and coverage rule, is the FAQs clarified that payers have to post certain information relating to the surprise billing protections on a public website. Well, there's some cases where a plan doesn't have its own website. So therefore, if you don't have your own website, how can you publicly disclose this information 
on a website. Well, the department said the plan can contract with a third party. Maybe it's an insurance carrier TPA. Maybe it's an independent TPA in the context of self-insured. And the information that needs to be posted publicly can be posted on that third party's website instead of the plan's website. So at least that alleviated, resolved some confusion on where does this information need to be posted, especially in cases where a health plan does not have their own website. Well, Chris, it sounds like there were some very needed clarifications in the FAQs. But man, I got to tell you, that's kind of balanced against the fact that, you know, the real world implications of some of the things you mentioned, like, you know, the databases and things like that are highly complex, especially for some of the markets and situations that our members are in. So we're still going to have to very much keep on top of this. No doubt. As the implications continue to unravel. So. You mentioned then quickly Q&As around the transparency and coverage rule. Let's wrap things up there. No doubt. So related to what I just said about confusion or questions in and around posting information on a public website, the federal departments clarified, hey, even though everybody posting the machine-readable files with the in-network rates and the out-of-network allowed amounts was effective July 1st, we're still going to come and provide you with some helpful clarifications, which is if you're a plan who does not have a website, you can rely on your third-party administrator and post the machine-readable files with those in-network rates and out-of-network allowed amounts on that third-party administrator's website. So even in cases where an employer who's sponsoring, let's say, a self-insured plan has their own public website, but the plan doesn't, The employer does not have to include links to these machine-readable files with this pricing information. Instead, the employer on the plan can contract with their TPA and include that link on the TPA's website. So that was a helpful clarification there. And then lastly, Dennis, the department said, hey, everybody, remember the cost-sharing liability tool? There's an effective date coming up of January 1, 2023 where the cost-sharing liability tool must be made available to patients. This is, again, part of the transparency and coverage rule. Well, the department said, look, there is a list of 500 shoppable items that must be included in this cost-sharing liability tool. And we recognize that by the time January 1, 2023 comes around, that list might be outdated from the list we provided to you back in 2020. But don't worry, everybody we're going to go ahead and update that list so everybody can be in compliance. So it was helpful for them to hear that. Now, that's pretty straightforward, right, Dennis? So to me, though, this FAQ, why we're talking about it is so important, is it confirms for us, at least up to this point, that the cost-sharing liability tool effective today is not going to be delayed. So everybody needs to plan for January 1, 2023. And this FAQ, in my opinion, is evidence that January 2023, January 1, 2023, is a hard and fast date. Well, Chris, even though we still have a lot of questions out there and a lot of uncertainties, the picture is starting to come into focus just a little bit more. And so the things that you've covered today help us. And we know we've still got more to come that we really need to be focused in on and uh, to keep up on. So thank you very much. Chris, just to close things out, one other political story 
that always comes up after Labor Day is that Washington becomes, you know, consumed by the midterms now between now and November. So it's going to be very interesting to see what the next couple of months leading up to the election look like and how much Washington and the various federal departments are focused on continuing to help us sort through and get the information that we need to meet the deadlines that they still have out there that you just talked about. So uh, I look forward to our conversation in October. Yes, it's going to be an interesting one. And it is segue to the midterm elections, which we will talk about in our next podcast, because whenever you get past Labor Day, it's then a sprint from an election campaign perspective to the November elections, which uh, itself is going to have its own implications of which we can talk about. So looking forward to that. I look forward to it too, Chris. Until then, take care. And to all of our listeners, we'll be back with you in October. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with another episode in a few weeks. Until then, keep an eye on your inbox for the next issue of our Policy Brief. To engage in a live Q&A with Chris Condolucci and our friends at Spring Street Exchange, be sure to register for our upcoming Policy Forum. To learn more, visit healthplanalliance.org. See you next time on Healthcare Policy Unpacked.